On this week's episode, Lee Griffin gets a little weird. Then you go do 100 hours with a safety pilot, beat off, beat, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Round off all the, uh, round off all the rough edges. Scott Boris gets a little profound. Go around basically means you failed. And I pretend to be important. So David or Clark, if you're listening, da- if, da- if, you know if somebody knows them. David or if, and or if somebody knows Clark, could you have them email I've, me? I've met Clark before. He seems alright. Yeah, I don't. I don't know okay. David though. Welcome to this week's episode of the Farming Podcast. Today we are doing a live Q and A on Facebook um, because the comment section. We're going to start. Um, Okay, yeah, we got we got the audience here now. I, I recognize all these names, and uh, so we're gonna start off with a an email. This is actually a comment that was on when we were uh, last week live streaming on Twitch. We did not get to Steel Aviators uh, comment, and I mentioned we would start with this, so we're gonna start with this today. He did follow up with an email, so I'm gonna read the comment and then the uh, the follow up email he did here. And it is, what is your experience when you were training for instrument? FAA requires only 15 hours with a CFII, then 25 hours with a safety pilot. I've done my 15 hours with the same CFII that I earned my private from. I'm hesitant to go and find any old pilot now to serve as a safety pilot just to save money. I feel like it makes more sense to log more IFR training hours with my CFII towards the 40 hours. Um, and then that was, so that was the Twitch comment screenshot. This is the email he followed up with. I started flying in May 2020 and earned my private in January 2021. I have 120 hours in a, seven, or a 78 Piper Archer. I train at K-Pi in St. Pete, Clearwater. I've logged 10 hours in a Redbird Sim plus 5 hours in a Piper Archer with my CFII. I'm starting to get comfortable flying with Foggles, but my CFII has been handing, handling the radio for most of the communication. So I am just now learning to talk to Tampa Approach on the radio. I'm confident on the radio when I'm flying VFR, but it's a different ball game when I'm under the hood. So I don't think I'm ready to train with a safety pilot yet. Instead, I'll probably keep training with my CFII. Thoughts? Question mark. And then in parentheses, it says, flying is just a hobby for me. I'm pursuing an instrument rating to make me a better pilot. And at my wife's request, thank you for your awesome podcast. Respectfully, Brian. First of all, don't send emails respectfully. There's a, a gentleman in the chat there I know who sends the right kind of emails. Uh <laughs> <laughs> last night Danny <laughs> he said yeah. I'm the re- I'm the reason he drinks I'm the only reason he drinks really? it wasn't even my fault it was last yeah. night yeah. it was Lee's fault last oh, night oh yeah well Lee not this guy Lee really screwed so, up last night good job so Lee. yeah this uh, this email basically you can get your instrument rating with you obviously need time with the CFII that's the Certified Flight Instructor Instrument uh, or like a regular CFI, like the one I have, I can't do that 15 hours that is required for the instrument rating. You got to be a double I like Mr. Griffin here. So he's asking basically, is it worth it to do the bare, the just the 15 with the CFII and then try to just get all your other IFR requirements that you can not with a CFII? If it saves money, right? If it saves money. 
Does that cheap, what you cheaper. did with your instrument rating, Scott? Yeah. No, you didn't because you did the same as I. Yeah, we no. did the one forty one. Yeah. yeah, I just didn't finish mine though. So we went. Yeah, so I did it all one forty one. So that was just which I don't recommend doing, um, at least not with the way I learn. But I mean, c- how helpful could that be, Lee? Because if you, it depends on who you're flying with. Like you could find Always. a pilot who's not a double I. Yeah. Like say, say your brother was a, like a really good instrument pro- pilot, uh-huh. like hypothetically, but wasn't a double I. Right. So you could, you could do a lot of requirements with them in theory and right and then yeah. save some money yeah i mean there's there's probably three three things that i would say um is it would only save you money if the outcome is successful if it's not success, successful you didn't save anything you know what i mean if you if you pass check ride the next thing would be let's say you only spend the 15 hours with the cf uh, double i and the uh dpe opens your logbook and like oh you did the bare minimum like it's going to be a tough ride for you I think I know the CFI that, 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 or the DP that I use a lot. And I know just kind of the general demeanor. Most of them, somebody opens up a book and this isn't your private anymore. You did in 40 hours. This is an instrument rating where you did it in 15 hours. They, they, how awesome is this pilot? Is it possible to do? I'm sure people do it all the time. I just know just the general, I would think that they would, they would expect very, a lot out of you if you did it in the minimum. And then, I don't know if this is your actual question. I would always recommend doing the full thing. I mean, doing the full thing with with a uh, with a uh, double I, um, and then kind of a, a just a kind of a segue is I the one forty one might be really advantageous for some people. I know where you're coming from. I, I've yeah. kind of you know kinda, we've we've kind of bashed you know one forty ones a lot, and there's plenty of reasons to you know both sides sixty one and one forty one. But man, somebody who maybe had a sixty one like the three of us did sixty one private, maybe maybe I could probably make a case for um, they're a good candidate for doing a one forty one program in the instrument if depending on what their goal was. Okay, I would recommend doing the whole thing with the CFII as well. Unless you just have some incredible opportunity to fly with somebody. But even in that case, I would still get more than the minimum 15 with the double I. I'd probably, you know, shoot for, I don't know. I don't know what the number is, but that, that just doesn't seem like enough for reality. For, and, for, and for, like you said, I didn't even think about the, once you're sitting down with the, um, at your check ride and it shows in your logbook, you know, you only have 15 hours with a double I. It's it's probably going to be a they're probably going to be extra scrutinizing. Yeah. With with you. I wonder, though, like if you show up and you that that's kind of your goal and you are very studious, you know, like let's say you don't have 100 hours in an airplane, you have 1500 hours. OK, so you're not you're not you didn't just get your private. You have 1500 hours in an airplane. And you go do 15 hours a duel with an instructor, but, and then you go do a hundred hours with your safety pilot, not just 25, a whole nother, you know, a, a bunch more. And then you have to remember, you know, one of the instruments, you know, or one of the, the, um, aeronautical experience requirements, you have to have, uh, three hours in the two calendar months prior to the, to the test or what is it? 
I got it right here. Yeah, two calendar months. Sixty it used to be sixty days. Two calendar months. So you've done your fifteen or twelve, whatever, to make the fifteen total. Then you go do a hundred hours with a safety pilot. Beat off. Beat. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> round off all the. Uh, round off all the rough edges. <laughs> and then, beat off all the. Rough then edges. you go for. <laughs> Yeah, round off all the rough edges, and then you go get three hours with your double eye again, and they recommend you for – if you get to the point they're recommending you, you're probably ready, you know, but I think I think you need to have a lot more, a t- more time in the book if, if you're showing up with the minimum. Oh, yeah. But you could offset that, like you just said, with – if you just had some ridiculous explanation when they're looking at your logbook, and mm-hmm. you can perform – Perform. Yeah, just be able to perform. That's bottom line, right? Yeah. I feel like they wrote this in for a smaller group of people, just so, like, like I don't feel like that the purpose of that is for your average person getting into aviation, I should say. Could you explain that? I'm... Like, they put this in because there's situations where someone was like, this is ridiculous that I need to go spend all this time with a CFII when I already have all of this. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I feel like was yeah. the driving force for them to put that in the regulation where it's like, okay, that's totally reasonable. Um, we'll make it so but you still legally have to have the 15 hours with the double eye then just to make sure all that stuff was, you know, you were learning something legitimate and you don't have bad habits or something. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's why that exists. Not, not to try to have someone brand new to flying like brand new to instrument rating, go and try to only spend 15 hours with a double eye. But I don't know. I wasn't there when they made the reg. Yeah. No, that, that stands to reason. I mean, the, the in, instrument instructing that I had done, you know, I've done maybe, oh, I don't know, four, five, six instrument ratings. The guys were pretty much around the 40. Now, granted, they could have gone and gotten a lot out of a safety pilot. Too. So I don't I don't have the compare and contrast capability, but just knowing what I saw the progression flying with them, and as they progress, you know, halfway through, you have to say less and less, and they're just kind of doing it. You're doing less instructing. You're doing more of the safety pilot function. So I suppose I could see I can see the value there, but I I can't I didn't see them in parallel to see how you know the the end result between the two methods. Does does a safety pilot have to be instrument rated? Well, you'd be doing it. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. That's something I probably should know, but I don't think so. You're doing it on a VFR day, right? So why would they have to be? Shouldn't matter. That's they're just looking. Yeah, they're looking for other airplanes. Yeah, Yeah. but I don't, I don't know that for sure. As dumb as that sounds, I, I, I'm fairly confident that you do not have to have just to be rated in the plane. You have to be able to fly that plane legally in VFR conditions while the person's under the hood. That. That would be my assumption. Okay, the, the um, chat's saying the chat's saying private only. So, yep. Thank you, Tyler, and everybody else. Cate- curtain category and class. It's a makes good. Sense. Yes. So, yep. Uh, unless you're in some weird situation, we recommend doing way more than 15 hours with the double I while pursuing your instrument rating. But there's there's going to be weird exceptions to that. If you have to ask, prob- you're probably not that exception. Right. Way to wrap that up. Cause yeah. I, I don't know. I can't think of an example offhand other than maybe, you know, if you grew up in a 135 certificate, for example, and you were just doing tons of 
IFR stuff, so you knew it like the back of your hand, and it's more of a formality for you? I mean, I guess there's other instances, you know, you, you go from like a military license to a civilian license, or you go from a Canadian to an American, things like that. I'm not exactly sure how the how all of the stuff transfers, but there yeah. may be scenarios like that where that would make it really, really easy. And I know, I mean, you can technically go combine a private pilot certificate and a... um and an instrument rating. I've heard that. Yeah. So People I, I know I, that. I think they're doing it. Are you doing it at the same time? I, I, need a, I need a minute, guys. We're having a meltdown upstairs. Oh, this is, this is a good one, Primer. Tyler asks, what are Scott's thoughts on building your own airplane from a kit? I uh, have very strong feelings on this, Scott. Don't do it. No. Don't do it. That would involve doing work. Yes. No, nobody's not pay- getting paid yes, for. Yes, nobody's paying you to do that work either. So. And Scott is more in the destroy airplanes than build yes. airplanes. Yes. He takes so them apart. That's step one. Scott's hangar is an aircraft graveyard. It's yeah. where they go to die. I decided a long time yeah, ago I hate airplanes. Aircraft. I hate airplanes yeah. so much that no, I don't really hate airplanes, but it's just it's mm-hmm. it's easier to make money that way. Than I would it. say it's a love hate relationship, and I think I yeah. have that too. Yeah. Oh, we all do. I think that's what yeah. makes our show semi. Yeah, we're not like unique. airplane. We're not like airplane nerds. We're like, oh, I just love everything no. about airplanes. Like, no, sometimes you two didn't really have a choice. You're just like you grow it yeah. up. Yeah. You're into airplanes, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Yeah, yes. They're expensive. I've had enough time in the business where I just got frustrated. I'm looking yeah. for the second email here. Lee, did you have anything on that IFR thing before we go to the next one? No, I think we covered. I'm a little upset that I didn't really know that they didn't need an instrument rating. I mean, I felt pretty confident that they didn't, but I don't know. That's why you go get an instrument rating. You don't have to worry about it. Go file IFR, fly AMC. Only yeah, it's 91.109C via Givon. I'm not nice. going to try to pronounce the last name. Yeah, thank you guys. You guys are a wealth of information. I hope you guys learn as much from us as we do from you guys. <laughs> I feel out of the. I feel completely out. Like, like since I don't have Facebook and I can't follow oh, along. I, oh, I thought about this. I'm gonna make you for the next time we do a Q and A on Facebook, which will probably be five episodes from now. I'm gonna make you a fake Facebook and just give you the the login and password for it. Your your name's gonna be uh, Carlos Danger, and then you can just use that to monitor the chat. <laughs> They're they're pretty strict uh, these days. They're, are they? Yeah, I've, I've had a tough time trying to make fake Facebooks. They catch them really quick. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll we'll give it a whirl. Yeah. Um, it doesn't look like we got questions coming in the chat, so we're gonna go to the second email here. Keep things flowing. Lee and Rob, they, they did not put Scott. James did not put Scott in this one. Well, so that's Lee okay, James. Rob. I'll I'll put my two cents in anyway. Well, these are these are answered emails. I did, we just thought they were good to bring them back up. Hope you guys are doing well. I missed the live show last night, but we'll catch up on the audio version when it is released. Uh, I have a I have my PP check ride coming up on September fourth. Private pilot PP check ride. Anyway, I I have maybe six <laughs> lessons scheduled before that time, including my solo long cross country and a mock check ride. What do you think is the best use of the remaining time with my CFI? Just revisit all the maneuvers 
And what would you recommend that I focus on studying on my own time? I know a lot of DPEs have their own hot button issues that they like to focus on. So I'm trying to find out what they are. Any, any other suggestions and advice you could, you could offer? So sorry, would be greatly appreciated. Still enjoying the podcast. Keep up the great work, James. See, I would recommend going through the, it's the ACS now, right? Yeah, the ACS. And just go through that. Every single thing that applies to you that's going to come up in the check ride. figure out what your weakest points are, and that's what you spend your time with the CFI. Lee probably has a more elaborate thought process when you that replied. Was all, that was all in the email. I recommend you, I, it's my, my list is even shorter than Rob's. He's telling you to go basically redo your whole thing. I'm just saying, just read my email. It'll get you. Go, it'll get you where you need to be. Well, no, uh, they, he already got his. I'm reading this for everybody right. else and yeah. the, for the not benefit a, of not the, everybody the, else. The can read the email, like, Lee. Yeah, you didn't send that email oh. to everyone. That's the thousands of people that are going to listen to this replay. So, yeah. Well, I can't really follow along all that well. For what? Like, I mean, I can't follow along. So what the original thing was the email, he'd already done it? No, he says, I have my PP check ride coming up on September 4th. So this, has, oh. this hasn't happened yet. This will be released. I No, yeah. it's not going to be released in time. I'm not. Okay, so I'm not in the zone that it's where this is for everybody. So, okay. Yeah, I'm okay, with so, you now. So somebody, yeah, so somebody has this, this check ride coming up, hypothetically. Because mm-hmm. you, you've, already, you've already answered James via email. But yeah, I can't uh, keep track of all this though. So I have maybe six lessons scheduled before that time. Like, so what would you do in those last six lessons? Getting uh, like six lessons worth of pre check ride prep. What would you be focusing on? You're asking me. Yes. Well, Scott, what would you be focusing on? We'll go to you first. The six lessons left. I don't know. I mean, I guess just tell me what he's gonna want to know. Just go over like check, just check ride prep, you know. Like, what did you do your six lessons with Don prior to your private check ride thirty years ago? Yeah, like I remember. I don't know. I mean, I think we just did like kind of like a summary, just like a basic. You go over the things that he knows what the examiner is going to want to see. So that was my biggest thing. I just wanted to know what I was going to have to do, so that you could. I didn't. I didn't want any surprises, you know. Right. Most people so, can't get like we were kind of fortunate that we all are we had gouge or at least our CFIs had gouge on what the examiner was gonna be looking for and their tolerances on stuff. Not everybody has that. Yeah, yeah you gotta be a CFI sending students to the same person a fair bit before you can get a good read. Mm-hmm. Are they are they usually open to being able to like like if you're a brand new CFI in the area you know you're going to be sending students to this DE are they like up for dinner can you like go drink say hey I'm new at CFI what do you want me to do when I'm sending you people I don't want it to be problematic because I know you kind of had this relationship not drinks but with Zeus he'd be yeah. he'd blame you more than the student half time if there's any problems on the check ride right and which probably is, as he should have you know yeah. But like the first, but yeah. yeah, the first ten I sent, I was a hundred percent. Like the first ten, like first ten, hundred percent pass rate. Um, and I was like, wow, like I'm on fire, like this is awesome. But it's about right when you get complacent and you start kind of. Then you know, I had, I think I've only had like two or three failures out of. I think I've recommended like 
I don't know, 20, 20 odd something people. And I think I only had two or three. I'd have to think about it. I think three failures. So, yeah, I, I don't, yeah, the drinks thing or, you know, obviously be careful, but hopefully they're open to it because you as the CFI kind of need, I, th- there's so much that you are responsible for teaching the person. And yes, you can get them very close to proficient, but it'd be much better to have like, I know they're going to do steep turns. I know you're on a, you know, commercial. I know you're going to going to do a Shondell or a, or a, what do you call them? Lazy eights or whatever, or eights on pylons, eights on pylons. Like, are you going to pick one? Do you have to do both of them? You know, like what's happening be much better for you to be able to beef up on the maneuver that they're most, the most critical, critical on. I think that that can't really be understated or overstated really. No, knowing the examiner. I had a, I had an instructor tell me to offer to get the examiner coffee once. I, uh, what? I was like, obviously you don't know who I am. Cause I am not ever going to do that, but <laughs> get him coffee. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he said, he said, yeah, you should just offer, get him some coffee or something. Like, yeah, you don't, you don't know me. Cause I'm not going to go ask him if he wants to get coffee. That would be that would have been so awkward, right? Yeah, like that's just not that's not me. For a CFI, though, there I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot to be gained from some type of somehow cornering, for lack of a better term, the examiner and just kind of feeling them out, figuring what they're figuring out what they're all about. And hey, you know, I was taught to do um, short fields this way. How do you want to see it done? I mean, it's it's not not that hard. Right. Well, you know, you, I mean, it's I mean, not like you're as asking a CFI, for, like you can ask them that stuff. It's, I don't think that's totally. appropriate to be asking them at, what right. they want to see. Whether it's over drinks, over coffee, whatever. And then if it allows you to get your students more ready. And maybe, you know, you overemphasize one area and you kind of drop the ball on another. That's just the way it goes, you know, but it, it's about to get them to pass the check ride. And then it's a license to learn, right? Yeah, Tyler just got the, a different Tyler just got in the chat. Tyler C. Uh, said your last few flights before the check ride should be all mock rides where you run through all the maneuvers, basically figure out what's wrong. He said that's more than that, but basically that was, what that was his gist. Ba- basically what I said. Yeah, was basically yeah. kind of what I said too. As yeah. far as you want to know everything that could come up on the ride, that's in the right. ACS. Yeah, the book is published of what they have to test you on. So if you read through that. And there's stuff that, like, you'd be like, oh, man, I hope that doesn't come up. You should probably say, hey, CFI, let's um, make me not so terrified that this might come up on the check ride. That should probably be a decent area to work on, so you're not worried about it. And Tyler B's, he um, he had another good advice. Don't prompt the check ride DPE as the PP check ride. <laughs> Maybe awkward. <laughs> We need to, if if we do anything with this episode, it's to stop calling it the PP check ride. Yeah, if, you've learned, if you've learned anything, it's probably not in emails, not, not on, in the internet, <laughs> not when you're talking about it in person, <laughs> private pilot check ride. All right. Just, we need, to, we need to stop this. First thing you should say to your DPE is, Hey, I'm here for my PP check ride. <laughs> yeah. Guaranteed to pass. How that's going to work. Guaranteed to pass. It's depending on who they are, it may it may work. I don't know. I think of the DEs that we know, and that probably wouldn't fly that well. 
Actually, I can think. I can think of one DPE that he might think that's funny uh, if he's never heard it. But I feel like that somebody, like if you're doing a bunch of private pilot check rides, someone probably has said that when they come in. Probably not. <laughs> then um, Dollar says FAR sixty nine. It's a different reg that covers the PP check ride. <laughs> uh, the the Tyler C. There's multiple Tylers now. We got a lot of Tylers. Um, yeah, he's saying uh, yeah, basically. I, I I would agree with that. He's saying the um, everyone he talked to post private check ride says it wasn't as bad as they were thinking about. Yeah, thinking it would be. It definitely wasn't. That means your instructor did a good job. Yeah, they knew I the remember, DPE and they set you up for success. I remember being so nervous, like going flying to take the check ride, and then like it just wasn't that. It wasn't hard. I don't know. It was like, I was very relaxed like while I was doing it. It's just, I don't know. But that was, you know, years ago when I was actually a competent pilot. So. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's basically all of the pre-slotted Q&A questions I had. And uh, nothing's come in the chat. So if you've got a question, this would be the time. Yeah. Or comment or concern or just hang out in the chat without Lee here. Unless he can make a quick Carlos Danger account. No. Nope, I don't think so. Um, what I, My two cents kind of on the checkride prep is, and I kind of emphasized it, but there's all the normal stuff. You know, hopefully you know your airspace. Hopefully you know, like, your runway, your airport air signage. Um, know where not to go at the very least. What some, you know, some of the very common oh, oh, stuff is. Definitely don't so. take your checkride at a controlled field. Yeah, but they still have flashcards. So, anyways, um, the one of the biggest things, just some of those more obscure things, and Rob, you kind of stated it, and just going through the ACS, you might not necessarily find it, but if there are things that you think you are afraid of and they hope you don't that you don't get asked, those are the things to study. Like you were talking more about the maneuvers going through ACS, but if there's subject matter that is kind of more ground school oriented that you hope you don't get asked beef up on those but um i think chair flying is one of the most important things you can do running yourself through mock check rides you can only really anybody can only really afford to do so much and you're limited to the airplane availability instructor availability and weather and all these things chair flying every night over breakfast over coffee whatever that's free you know, run run through stuff. You know, um, get pretty get pretty animated with it for the most part. At least like mentally, like you don't need to physically move your hands. I mean, you can if you want. It might help some muscle memory. But as you're running through a maneuver. What types of force are going to be exerted? What your how your inputs will change? Like let's steep turns for example. You know, obviously you roll into that bank, and some of that horizontal component of the lift is is going inward. The turn, well, obviously you're losing lifts. So that means you need back pressure. So think kind of think it through like that. Talk it out if you want. But um, think it through like that. And on those little micro steps that are going to happen in the maneuver, that is super, I mean, free. And, y you know, it's it's maybe probably about as valuable as actually going to flying in the airplane. You can do it 10 times, you know, for nothing in a shorter period of time. If there's a, just trouble on one maneuver where there's only like maybe one axis that you're having trouble with, like in a steep turn, you're holding bank 
and you roll out on heading and stuff, but you keep losing altitude. Well, focus on that. I mean, you can do that. You don't have to do 10 steep turns by running an airplane. Do it, do it mentally. Uh, I mean, that's huge. Every, every training scenario that I've been in um, professionally has all been like we called it a paper tiger, but you go through, you know, your flows and you go through the, the, you know, the takeoff and, and initial climb and all these things all mentally. You do it with a partner. So it's a little bit different because everybody kind of visualizes things different and you, you're always aware. Um, that you're maybe a little bit off kilter from the other person, but this is a single pilot thing. So you, I mean, this, this I would say it's hugely important for you to uh, do a lot of chair flying. And then in the, I pulled up the email, the response to this guy. One of the things that, that I think Rob and I, uh, especially have hit on before the time for learning is pretty much like over a couple of days. You're not learning anything new or shouldn't be. You can brush up on some stuff. But don't try and cram and learn new things in the couple days prior to the uh, to the check ride. That's my opinion. That should just be basically chair flying, polishing the maneuvers a little bit. You'll know what you need to know. And if there's areas that you're weak, that should all be pretty ironclad multiple days before the check ride. The night before, just get get some rest. Have hey, hey, eat eat well, get some rest. But yeah, don't don't. Don't think you're going to be learning new things the night before your check ride at 8 a.m. That's my opinion. Definitely not. I feel like that's a good good wrap-up with that. Is it Gavon or Givon? I'm not going to even try to pronounce the last name. We don't usually do the last names anyway. But is that Dutch? I've got Dutch relatives in and around Amsterdam. and A lot of them have the, the Von something stuck titles and everything as last names i have no idea oh he says just greg i thought i was reading too much into it anyway he's got a good question which i've i've been wanting to get brendan saunders back on because i know he's got a pet some pet peeve i don't know what the pet peeve is that's why i wanted to have him on about the lesson plans he says i'm working on my lesson plans for cfi and there are a lot is there a better way uh, to go about this than just going through the PTS and making one for each possible task. That's kind of what I did. Is there a better way to do that when you did it, Lee? Or is that kind of just the standard you do for starting out lesson plan wise? It depends on how much you want to adhere to stuff. Like it's like for your CF, like you're, you're making these lesson plans for your CFI check ride. That's one thing. But if you're making lesson plans for practical use, I do not actually have to do for use. I've since I since started to make things a little more uh, empirical, you know, as you're teaching people and you kind of there are less knowledge gaps. You're making sure you're covering things correctly. Um, but the more it's dual given you get, the more you migrate away from that because a lesson plan does not give you the latitude to end to kind of. Uh, it's not enough of an umbrella to cover the vastly wide range of backgrounds and um, what do you want to say aptitudes that people come in with. That's one of the things I saw. So yeah, that that thing's good and it's good talking points and whatever, but it's not. I don't think, it, and maybe I'm just a hack instructor. That's very possible too, but I don't think that. Well, that's highly probable. I don't think <laughs> that. I don't think that it, it covers the wide range of people sitting in that in that left seat when you're an instructor. So the more I think dual given you you have under your belt, like I think I have 1900 hours of dual given. I think the more, I mean, just years ago, but even still, the more you have under the belt, the more you're going to diverge away from that and 
read your your customer, your client, and tailor uh, something to them. You still obviously have to get them to meet the standards, and that's up to you how you get them there. Some are going to be a longer road than others, but you got to figure out kind of what makes people tick and how a lesson plan helps you do that. I don't really, I don't really see how that works. That's that's my opinion. Um, I would, if I were to go back and do it again, if I didn't have an FAA inspector breathing down my neck or an observed check ride or something like that, I would create probably broad spectrum um, uh, performance maneuvers. I would have one syllabus for that. And then I would earn ha- uh, one um, uh, lesson plan for that. And I would try and draw as much commonality between the maneuvers. Obviously, I know they're vastly different maneuvers. But when you're sitting in the airplane, you're not going to be teaching somebody really from a lesson plan. You're going to be sticking rudder, hands on, like just getting through it. Lesson plan is going to help you there. So I'd go broad spectrum on the type of maneuver. Like let's say it stalls slow flight and then performance maneuvers, uh, you know, your chandelles, eights on pylons, whatever, steep turns. And I would try and um, bring as much commonality to those things because I find that people, individuals, they, they grasp for parallels between, you know, the different maneuvers and different setups. Like how is my, my um, go around this is the best example. I was never taught. I was never taught this way, and I don't know why. And you guys will probably all laugh at me, but nobody ever really made the equation. It doesn't really matter. I picked on. I picked it up on my own, but it was never taught to me in, in these terms. A go around is basically a full stall recovery. Like duh, like that's just one way up air work. Go around basically means you failed. <laughs> no, that's not true. So, anyways. It, I never was dr- drawn that parallel that it's the same exact thing. Why do we make such a big deal about training one setup one way and one another? Like, it's just it, there are commonalities and things that you can draw as parallels to maneuvers and make it a lot more palatable for the student, the client. And I think that's how I, if I were to go back and start draw, draw, drawing up lesson plans today, that's what I would try to do is I, I would take some more time, create a foundation of commonality and then start building lesson plans off of that by kind of the um, sec- chapter section, whatever, uh, in the ACS. Instead of making a crazy thousand page thing, try and just performance maneuvers. And I, don't, I guess I don't really know what the other ones, navigation, uh, you know, I don't know what other ones there are off the top of my head, but, or I can't think of any is what I mean. That's right. Start. I thought I had my lesson plans from my CFI, but this is double I stuff that I was working on. I never got the double I. Oh, uh, God. oh my that God. Looks like, That's kind that looks of like way too much work. Yeah. I don't, I, I was thinking I did this cause it was a few years ago when I was working on this and I'm like, man. I did a lot. I didn't realize how much instrument stuff I did. And I was looking through it. And I'm like, man, this is really good. And then I'm like, no, this is this was on a thumb drive. Another double I gave me, and I just printed it all off and put it in the book. So that's the way to do it. That is yeah, how I would do yeah, it. That's so, another way. That's another way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> save you I a lot of time. Definitely do not come up with your own lesson plans. I mean, unless somebody's paying I, you a lot of money to come up with your own lesson plans. I just did it for my initial CFI, and I thought it was very useful. To come up with well, your definitely. own? Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, because you have to work through it mentally to like guess, make the lesson yeah. plan so it, it pre- prepares you. But maybe it's just me. 
No, 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 you're 100% right. That's one of the biggest things you get. You know, you get the CFI. That's another license to learn. And you learn what you don't know by the questions people pose to you. You think you have things ironclad, but it's so hard to try and teach somebody that you know knows more about the subject matter. Like when you're on your CFI initial check ride, you're trying to teach somebody that you know knows way more than you do. It is a complete and total like screws with your mind. You know, so I, I found that very difficult. I hated that. I'm sure most people do. But once you have legit students in there and you can kind of fake it till you make it, that's pretty much what everybody does as far as I've seen. Yeah. You don't tell them something wrong, but you can kind of, you know, skirt around some of the stuff and circuitously answer a question like a politician, you know, and then when you get a chance to read up on it after that lesson or something, you can come back armed with a little bit more information, cover your tracks a little. So the next question we have in the comments is Adam haven't flown in about two years. That makes two of us and am looking into getting back into it. You think it's something that will come back pretty quickly. I basically got my PPL and flew for a few months before letting it take a back seat to everything else. Uh, this is something we've we've come up before, and I was surprised. I took a seven-year hiatus uh, at one point and jumped back into a Cessna 172, which I did not have a bunch of time in, in an area, uh, Foxtrot 45, up here in uh, basically North County, Palm Beach Airport off of Beeline Highway, which I didn't have a lot of time in. And I was surprised at how easily it came back. But then I th- think you and or Ryan Lee pointed out that that was from a perspective of having hundreds and hundreds of hours in my logbook already. Mm-hmm. So we're not, I, I don't know, It'd obviously go up with a CFI and just knock rust off. It's only been, what, two years? I don't think it'll be that big of a deal. I think it's... Well, if you you, you just got his private though, Scott. Well, so I don't right. know. I mean, he's going to. I would assume not. He's going to assume do not. a few hours with the CFI, but I think after you do a few hours with the CFI, you'll. In my opinion, this the stick and rudder stuff will come back pretty quickly. The other stuff, obviously, you have to. I I feel like it would. I just don't know. Yeah. This came up when uh, Eamon was on as well, uh, because he was Lee. You missed that episode, right? That was Ryan mm-hmm. Eckel, Eamon, Scott, and I. Yeah, and we at some point. Do the experiment. He, Echo wants to take him up in Scott's plane. Scott's plane now running. We got to get that David Clark little doodad that records everything in your cockpit. Yeah, except now my uh, but my uh, intercom died. Oh, really? Yeah, I got a two. This person reminds one. me too. I got Probably a two person one a... now, but that one won't work because we need to plug in to record. So you totally right. hose this whole situation, didn't you? No, I didn't. But the intercom died, and Jim had a two-person one that we stuck in the plane. How much is a? F- how much is another one? Well, I don't know. I haven't looked. And but you haven't even, you haven't even bought the other shit yet. So I'm gonna. I know. Well, now maybe now we have to think of a new solution. Um, well, but that I reminded me. A, a intercom, but this came up at work today. If anyone's got any contacts high up at David Clark, we're not looking for sponsorship. I'm just curious about some product issues we're having on one of their lines, their their maritime lines, not not the aviation line, getting the runaround from what I understand. Anyway. So David or Clark, if you're listening. Da- if da- if, know if somebody knows them. David or if, and or if somebody knows Clark, could you have them email I've, me? I've met Clark before. He seems all right. Yeah? I don't, I don't know okay. David, though. So, yeah. 
He's more of a back of the house guy. Yeah. So yeah, yeah anyway, Eamon, we'll see, because Eamon was just shy of getting his private. He almost got his private and then stopped doing it. So we're curious how he handles getting back in the cockpit after what? decade now since he stopped flying that's probably been well i probably did his last like real lesson and yeah you were actually you were in there he brought up his logbook and it was his last flight was with the legendary lee griffin yeah i think it's i think that made the intro cut of the show if you go back and listen to the amen episode yeah well i probably also turned him off to flying completely so (laughs) right that's probably why i quit after that he was probably like okay i'm done with this i don't yeah i don't blame him yeah you were probably yelling at him um, well, yeah, I guess that's what I do. I um, right. I think that the stick and rudder, for the most part, comes back. I wouldn't say it's like super easy because I took a year off from, um, or a little bit over a year since I flew a 150, and then I went up in my buddies, and I can't remember if I was right seat or left seat, which always kind of messes with me a little bit too because I don't fly from the right seat normally. And it was, I, you know, I was surprisingly worse than I thought I would be. It came back quickly, like the second landing was infinitely better but it took me four or five landings to get kind of like back up to like somebody would probably if i would if i would have done those four or five landings came in parked it and then somebody walked around the corner and they got in with me they wouldn't know that i hadn't been flying it all along i i felt but it took me five landings and i flew 400 hours last year just in a different airplane so if if so in this if this individual's case you got your private in a 172. You took two years off. You, you got your private in a 172, maybe flew a handful of hours after your private, just getting comfortable. Took two years off. Then you go jump right back into a 172. And it's kind of like, oh, yes, yeah, feels like coming home, like just getting in. Like everything's right where you remember it and stuff like that. That is probably, I would I would think, in the first couple landings. You'd probably you'd probably shave some some off like not like riding a bike. I don't want to use that analogy, but probably probably quicker than it came back for me, just because I have like almost bad reinforcement, you know, detracting from my ability to get up to speed in a particular airplane. This but leads you can, right, this, go, ahead. go ahead. I was go. just gonna say the the actual peripheral things, airspace. Oh, like, I guess what else? Like, you know, weather, airspace, the regs. I don't want to say that there's no reason you can't keep, like, keep up on those. I mean, you don't want to go crack the the book or any book if you don't have to. So if you don't think that you're going to be flying on the horizon, I don't expect you to be reading the far aim for fun. But that stuff is free, though. So letting that lapse and going doing ground because there's people that like they take a decade off. They want to go do ground school and like catch up on everything they missed. It's like, well, you can go buy current editions of the books and just read them for pennies on the dollar compared to sitting and getting spoon fed by an instructor. So that's up to you. Everybody is different. I like to read. So that is kind of my alley. Everybody's different. Whatever Scott, you think you is like easier to read for you. Too, right? I- Love reading. No, I hate reading. I don't like to read anything. It hurts my eyes. It it burns my eyes to read words on paper. Yeah. Okay. Uh, That leads into Josh's question. What are your best landing tips? I've noticed that especially when I'm climbing to, when I'm circling to land, my sight picture gets jacked up and I've had some pretty ugly touchdowns. Circling to land on an, on an instrument, IMC. I mean, obviously, you're circling in VMC, which I get. But is this an, you shot an approach, you're circling to land? Oh, I, I, I don't know. That, that's I, I'm, I'm assuming what I, he means, but let's see. 
I was assuming he was talking about the, uh, yeah, I'd, I didn't know this. I didn't read too far into the circling part. Well, I mean, when you say I either, I'm either flying the patterns, that's VFR is the way I would take it, or he's circling to land, which I consider to be typically an IFR type maneuver. I know there's a lag. Tyler B, one of the many Tyler Bs, uh, not the Tyler B mentioned previously. Uh, biggest thing that helped me was slow flight over the runway with the instructor, of course, and doing your best to keep the plane in ground effect without letting the mains touch. Do that several times, and I bet you see the landings <laughs> improve. Yeah, that's the that's the uh, your Eric's question, right? We'll get to yeah. that next. <laughs> yeah. You'll get to that next, Scott. I know you're dying to, yeah. to low just... enough for the flare. So Tony's asking about getting low enough for the flare, and like probably the sight picture stuff as well. It's 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 all that sight picture. It's all it's all the sight picture. You've got to get that sight picture in, and you've got to make sure. I, we were fortunate with the 150. At least my 150 at, yours had different seats, Scott, but. In the beginning, you want to make sure that seat is in the exact same yeah. freaking position every flight. Right, because it's just Before, the feeling that it just... Yes. Yeah. That seat position has to be identical. I mean, as you get more and more hours, you can adjust. And like, if the seat's a little off, then it, you know it, does, it doesn't matter. I, I got no, this. You know, I still like mine like, up close, though. I... It's yeah. a 150, so it's so small. Like everybody, even people shorter than me, usually fly with the seat all the way back. I actually put it up a little bit closer just because I'm used to. I don't know. I like being up on the controls. I don't know. I don't like. I don't like sitting back. Yeah, it's, you want to keep your eyeballs in the same position in the cockpit. That's what's so yeah. one of the challenges of going over to the right seat as a CFI and flying from the right and doing everything from the right is it throws your sight picture through a loop. Um, for for side by side, I flew sight right seat one time for a couple hours, and I thought it was going to be like really hard and confusing. And it, after like a few minutes of flying, it was you had hundreds of hours just, in the make and model plane, though, didn't you? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you get to that yeah. point, you can move your sight picture around, and you're still going to yeah. be fine. But at yeah. the beginning, it's crucial that, that oh, seat's yeah. locked in the exact same position every time. Or else that's you're heavily relying on your eyeballs being in the exact same part of the cockpit through the through those first couple hundred hours. Where I think after that it's not as critical once you've had a couple hundred hours in the same make and model. Or one a thing, bunch of hours and playing similar. Yeah. Yeah, that's critical. so one thing, uh, I'm probably gonna lose my train of thought, but just to emphasize your point, how critical the sight picture. Um, the consistency of sight picture is in aircraft that that are well in some transport category airplanes, and then anything that is category two certified, meaning you can do a an, an ILS to category two minimums, which is a hundred feet, well a hundred feet um, decision altitude, so a hundred feet AGL, so half of the normal Cat one. They have what's called an eye height referencing device, so you basically have what three like. It's almost like you like lining up the um, the sights on a on a firearm on a gun where you have like maybe three white dots. They all have to be in line, and that would show you proper height. If you're too low, you know you're going to show the middle. Uh, the middle dots going to show high. So w- once you have them all, so meaning your eyes are too low, basically. So you have to get all three of the balls in line or three dots. They're actually like actually like little balls. So you get those in line and that'll show you proper eye height adjustment for um, category two operations, which suffice it to say, 
would help you on any landing. You know, if you need it for that, you might as well get used to what that sight picture is all the time. So that's a big deal. Um, can't yeah, you can't downplay the importance of the con, con, you know the consistency of sight picture. Like Rob and Scott are saying, you need a ton of time. You can roll with the punches. I find out sometimes I've come into land and you adjust your seat because you're sitting in the same seating position basically for two or three hours, right? You you put your seat back and you drop it down. You bump it up so you can see better or whatever the case may be. Well, sometimes I forget to adjust it back and that kind of sucks and you don't figure that out until you're like 100 feet and you're like, ah, shit. You know, this isn't going to be, you know, this is going to be ugly because you haven't adjusted it back to your normal landing uh, position where all your all your things are. One of the things I found is if my seat is too far back, and I'm sure I'm five foot six, so I have to have it all the way forward, and, I, and we had, we can adjust our rudder pedals forwards and back too. So I have to have them all pretty like tightened up to make it work. But um, the yoke, the consistency of pull on the yoke, I don't want to have to get back to like where my my shoulder strength is or starts to decrease. And then I still have to pull to arrest the flare. That's something I, I feel like I, you know, I don't want. This. So there's a very, there's a sweet spot as far as where my seating position is that correlates to how, much, where the effort, where the muscle groups work, where I can really finesse the landing as well as I want to. So th- those are a couple things I knew I was going to lose it. I was going to say I did lose it. The more okay. important point, unfortunately. Uh, fleeting, well, fleeting thoughts. Yeah. That's um, too bad. Scott, I know you're we, dying to answer that one question. We somebody have, asked we have another. We have another more important question in here, Lee. Uh, okay. How many milk jugs should I take <laughs> when when flying over water? <laughs> this is Eric Eric's question. Because are as you, you tying know, them together by the handles, or we need well, more for, information for some? If somebody no, doesn't no, no. know, like it's, this is a previ- This is a previous episode. Scott does not carry the proper life jackets that you're supposed to have for flights over water he carries empty milk jugs instead so that someone eric's just wondering the milk jug to life jacket conversion rate is there a is there an exact science on this mr boris i would say at least one per person but i don't know lee what do you think you think you need two lee see lee's over cautious he'd probably carry two Two, two per person. Two milk yeah. jugs per two person. Two per person. And you know what? If you're really feeling froggy, get three in case one has a hole in it. Well, you see, won't know until it's taken on water. I would think like... Or the cat okay. pops off one of them. Well, that's... See, I wasn't thinking two because like if I have... it's If it's my wife and I, I don't want to throw four milk jugs in the back. But two is fine. They're okay, not maybe, full. They're full of air, dude. They're full of air. Well, right, right. But they take up space. They don't weigh stuff. anything. Yeah, but then I gotta find. You would, you I gotta go run around and find four milk jugs. Like your wife's on board, Scott. You're not gonna throw in a spare milk jug. That's for your what wife? I was saying. I would throw three in there just in case one of them failed. Okay. Or if there's a mal- okay. if there's a mechanical failure of one of the milk jugs, like it had a hole in it or the cap popped off. Or something. Okay, so, I can see that's redundant. I if, I think if, if that's not love, I don't know what is. I would say three milk jugs for every two people. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's um I recommend getting US Coast Guard approved life jackets. If you got four people, I would throw six milk jugs in. Just to be safe. Yeah. yeah so several people are jumping in. You could probably the- get away with five. You could probably get away with five. Really? Well, you probably don't like one of the people that's with you. So Right. Just so take five. Three, really. <laughs> Are, you two, like, you two, well, buddy up, hold hands. Let's be, let's be realistic. 
you get you crash into the water. You think all f- all five or four of you are making it out of the plane? Probably not. One's probably gonna be stuck in the plane anyway. So, do you really need the extra milk jug? Probably not. Man, that's some <laughs> some good advice. Not really. Uh, no, I'm yeah, just kidding. Coast I'm just kidding. Approved. I would highly recommend one to two milk jugs per person. <laughs> okay. Uh, you had me. You had me for a second. I thought you were gonna give some rational advice, and last second, last second. Okay, and uh, back to the the oh, landing. Oh, that's a good Everyone... idea. Fill the fill the milk jugs with helium. Oh no, no, we've been over this. Better yet, hydrogen. I hear that's never a problem. No, uh, yeah, yeah, it works out well. Let's let's go nuts here. Let's do hydrogen. So everyone's talking yeah. too about the landing, the advice, and I forgot to bring and this came, up in YouTube. And I did. came back. I came back with what the, mine is, but go ahead. The um, keep your eyes down towards the end of the runway, off in the distance. That's huge. I, don't I be don't agree with at, that. No, that's not my technique. That's always helped me. I don't know what you want me to say. I, I don't even know what I do. Your landings honestly, are better than mine. I don't even know what I do. I'll, next time I'm on final, I'll tell you what I do. I don't know. You're not gonna. Re- you're not gonna remember next time you're in final. You're not gonna be at final for another month, probably. No, I'll probably fly this weekend, maybe. All right, you do the experiment. Nice. So, Lee, you, where do you look when you're landing, then, Lee? So, a couple, are you talking? So, in, are you talking in the Learjet or GA? In uh, in GA, I mean, I, I I do the same technique. I did it in the in the airlines too. Same exact technique. Um, and I, you know, I've had some bad landings, but I like to think I'm pretty consistent. But I, so I fixate pretty closely to, I try to land. I'm one of those guys who tries to land on the thousand footers or fixed distance markers, whatever you want to call them. I try to land on those because that's where I'm supposed to land. So I try. So I do fixate, hone in, whatever, on that point. I keep the airplane pointed where I think I need to so that the mains are touching down on those. And I, I do miss it sometimes. I, I won't, I won't t- hit those and sacrifice a good landing if, if I can help it. So I'm, I'm fixating, I'm watching, and I and I just try to keep those, the fixed distance markers, whatever my aiming point reference is for any, if you want to use something else or if you don't have those, you know, like if it's, okay, so you have the numbers, are you trying to land on the numbers, you know, look maybe at the far end of the numbers or it's so many, you know, uh, the dash center line, so many of the dash segments ahead of the, of the numbers or of, uh, in front of the threshold, whatever you want to use as your, as your touchdown point reference keep that fixated make sure that doesn't really move in relationship to the glare shield or in correlation to somewhere on the on the windshield you want that to stay in the same spot that's how you know you have a consistent point of aim so i do that and i keep watching that until i've pretty much made and this is you know a very subjective metric but until i've made the transition from descending towards the runway to rounding out in, into the flare. So as soon as I make from my stabilized, uh, you know, um, deck angle, um, my attitude indicator, my, I, not that you're really referencing that too much. We do a little bit in the instrument environment. But you have your deck angle, your sight picture, what have you, locked in. And that shouldn't change much. Shouldn't change much. I mean, obviously, if you have transitory conditions on a windy, gusty day and all that stuff, I get all that. And that just takes time to really isolate the variables and and do your best and roll with the punches as you get closer to the runway. But if it's a smooth day and you can really work on the sight picture alone and minimal, minimal changes, keep that consistent. You make the transition from the 
descending towards the runway to kind of round it out, lifting that nose into the flare. When I kind of let my eyes stay, I'm rotating, my eyes stay pointed the same place out the windshield, but I'm allowing that pitch change uh, of the airplane that I'm obviously sitting inside of to shift where my eyes are looking, if that makes any sense at all. I'm looking out, like if there's a bug on the windshield and that's right in the center, I'm looking at that bug through that bug all the almost the whole time, if that makes any sense. So if the airplane's yeah. pointed down, my eyes are looking at the concrete. As I rotate the airplane towards a pitch-up attitude to flare, my eyes transition. They end up scanning down the runway. Okay, that's what I do. Yeah, like, I guess that's kind of ta- what I'm I do. I'm talking about in yeah. the flare, I'm looking down towards the end of the runway. What gets scary, Larry, is when you are in the flare trying to look at your landing gear and seeing how close it is to the ground. That doesn't work. No, yeah, I wouldn't say do that. Um, I don't, I don't, well, I guess you, you I... Can't, you fly Piper, you can't do that anyway. Yeah, right, right, right. I've tried that in the yeah. Cub a time. Didn't, did not go good. No, um, some of my worst landings were, were looking close to me during the flare. I, well, I, I, maybe we're doing the same thing. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe we are. But I'm not looking, I'm never looking opposite end far. I'm never looking far end of the runway. Like, never. Are you saying you're looking far end? Or are you looking halfway down or a third down? Or I'm just looking, I don't know, I'm looking maybe 10, 510, 150s out in front of me. Hmm. Or, or possibly, or the end, depending on the runway length, I'm thinking mm-hmm. if it's a really long runway, I'm probably not looking at the very end of it. If it's a really short runway, like Scott's place, I'm looking at the flare. I'm probably looking at like yeah, the where the pond is. Well, if I'm landing towards the east part of the runway, when I'm flaring okay. out towards the on the west end. Yeah, that's probably yeah, that's probably about where I am. So you're looking maybe three five hundred feet ahead of you. Yeah, maybe. By the time you're by the time you've crossed the threshold and you're really rounding out. Yeah, that's, yeah, probably 500 feet ahead of me. That's probably realistic. I'd have to. I'll I'll try to pay a little bit more attention to it. But yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not right in close. Um, although there is some, you can obviously get a better sense of how high you are if you, if you have good vision and you can tell the 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 grain and the concrete things like that. It does give you some good depth perception. That's true. But that's where a lot of the very prominent illusions take place you know you're you're the runway's wide so you think you're higher than you are and you tend to kind of just slam it in because you weren't prepared to flare or it's you know it's nighttime or it's a thin runway and you have less detail so your your eyes and your brain perceive that as distance um so you can tend to stall flare high stall high and kind of smack it in things like that so keep keep that in mind but i mean I think the timeliness of when you're transitioning from pointed where you're, you're aiming point and transitioning to the further down the runway um, to keep the consistent height. I think, I think that's really what that does is that gives you that consistent height. So you're holding those wheels off, you know, a foot or so off the ground. And then um, a re- whenever you start to feel that last little bit of sink, you just pull in the last little bit of elevator to arrest it. I think that's all you're doing when you're looking far down. I think you've already established your flare height. When you make that transition from pointed at the runway and then you've pitched, 
you're already setting up for the most part what your flare height above the runway is going to be. That's when you've made that decision. Because you can't just yank it because then you'll stall and fall out the bottom, possibly. Or you'll balloon up. So, there, I mean, there's a couple of a few different outcomes that are not desirable if you try to arrest it. So, you when you start first putting in that that a little bit of back pressure, start going from your descent stage towards the runway to kind of leveling off and then like flare, you've already set your, your height above the ground. When then when you look further down the runway, that is going to help you with kind of just the sink in your stomach or float in your stomach, I guess, when the airplane is settling for you to put in that last little bit to, to arrest that, you know, that last foot or six inches of, uh, of travel before you hit the pavement. I think that's what that's for. It's an art. It's an art that last, Definitely. last moments of getting those wheels to set down softly. Yeah. And, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Total, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely more art than science. That's 100%. And one thing I want to bring in when somebody's talking about um, honing in like consistency of landings, it's not going to give you a good landing, but consistency, and then you can work on the, the finer points, is when you're crossing treetop height or so, you know, that, that theoretical 50-foot, you know, or whatever, one thing we have like in transport category airplanes is we have a radar altimeter, which calls out altitudes for us. So we'll typically get a 500 and then like a 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. And so what I would to try and make that transition for, for you, if you're, if you are aspiring to be a professional pilot or an airline pilot or whatever, try and I, I would try to bring in, if I were to start a flight school right now, one of the things I would probably try and put in to the SOPs is when the altimeter reads about 100 feet, and every airplane is a little different, but when the air, altimeter reads about 100 feet, you're really about 50 feet off the ground because it lags and there's there's static um, pressure changes that or there's pressure changes that happen as you get closer to the ground and stuff with... Um, uh, what do I want to say? Um, like with the pedostatic system. So it's not quite right. But if you go look at like a tree that you think, look, I'm standing on the ground that looks like 50 feet. Well, if you look at that same tree when you're coming over it, yeah, altimeter is going to tell you you're 100 feet. So when the altimeter says about 100 feet and you know, figure out your airplane. But when you get to what you think is about 50 feet above the ground, which the altimeter will say is probably about 100, take a snapshot of everything you have going on your pitch attitude, your power setting, your airspeed. I'm not saying you need to have it locked in because I don't. God knows that I don't. But know about what it should be on a perfect no-win day, your peak proficiency pilot. This is when you were a rock star. This is what you would have wanted. Okay, let's say that's, let's say that's 65 knots. And it's a not ideal day but it's, you're about 50 feet AGL. So whatever that equates to on your altimeter, which you can go figure out basically on your own, do some like test runs or whatever. Do that last glance at about 50 feet and take a snapshot of what you have going on. And of course you have to have some baselines, but you kind of know what the book should tell you somewhat, what you should just kind of intuition, your instructor, your intuition, your instructor, and what the book tells you between those three things, you should be able to have a pretty good composite image of what you would want to see coming into the flare. So at 50 feet, I would pretty much say that that's kind of one of the last chances you have to really look at instruments. After that, you're outside. 
Would you agree with that, Rob? 50 feet? Yeah, I mean... Are you going to be looking at the airspeed much after that? No, unless it's like a new plane to me. Like a Cessna? No, I'm just... At 100 feet, I'm just... No. Yeah. I've been glancing not, at that airspeed indicator yeah, coming around base and final to yeah. make sure I'm not close to a yeah. stall and make sure I'm coordinated in my turns right? and um, all that jazz. But once I'm on final at like 100 feet up, I'm not I'm not paying attention to what's going on inside. I'm I'm out. I'm doing it all by everything by feel. Like my I speeds agree with and you. everything my, by feel and by sound. So I agree with you 100%. I agree with both of you guys 100%. And so that's why I think that should be maybe something to seek and figure out about what that snapshot should be when you look at it and now what it is. If 60 or 65 was ideal, well, now it says 75 because it's gusty and I'm carrying all this stuff. Okay, 75. You do that quick glance. Power setting's a little high or it's a little low. My Or maybe it's idle, so it's, it's not a big deal. But 50 feet, you want to see 60, but you see 75. What can you expect in your landing that you are going to need to change so that in the like the last final seconds of the flare is normal. Well, like the first thing is probably flare, take a little bit of power out now or take a little bit of power out, you know, coming into the flare or whatever you're going to do, do it all early. So round out a little higher so you can start bleeding some of the energy. So I say take that snapshot image at about 50 feet, probably when the altimeter says 100 feet, Fig- figure that out, know your baseline, shoot for that, Take that last snapshot, make an adjustment, or at least know what you need to do and start bringing consistency in the, in the, if you can get that last one, because that's who everybody judges. Like I don't do it. I pull power at 30 feet when it calls 30 feet. Most everybody for consistency, as soon as it says the airplane tell it says 50, it'll just say 50 orally. Everybody just chops power. I wait till 30 because my landing technique is a little bit different, but, um, Everybody else just does it at 50. So I'm trying to bring some, maybe for your career, bring some commonality to that. I think it may help some consistency for a lot of people. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, Scott's, uh, Scott's got to wrap it up here because it's yeah. coming up on 9 it's o'clock. Getting, uh, uh, Eastern Standard Time. Yeah, and uh, he's got to read the review, uh, five-star review. Not oh, the yeah. one I sent today, Scott. All right. Which one am I reading? The the one I sent yesterday. The one I sent to us this morning is one that came in this morning that I thought was good. I don't even think it's on the podcast app yet. It's just I, I pay for a service, so it's immediately when it happens, it hits my email. So you want me to, the one, to read the one you sent today? It was like, no, <laughs> no. No. I believe it was by user Razorback172, I believe was the username. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I wonder if read, you here. Read that one. I will read it. Very informative. Five stars. Lee, Rob, and Scott all bring three great views to their experience. <laughs> I have trouble reading sometimes. Three great views to their experience in aviation. Your three different backgrounds make for neat stories that truly is a hangar talk atmosphere. Started listening after my discovery flight and have listened to almost every episode except a few IFR ones. Finished my PPL and now building time for next endorsement. Keep them coming. Thank you. Was, yeah, is that Razorback172? Yes. On the Thank Apple you, Razorback172. 
Yes, thank you for the five-star written review. That's uh, it's wonderful. We appreciate it. We love the love. And uh, it actually does not do anything to help the show, like from what I've researched, but it's just fun anyway. So we like, it we like doing it. Yeah. Um, yes, email is our preferred method of communication. My email is F-A-R-A-I-M at robertberger.com. B-E-R-G-E-R is the German way, not this sandwich way. And Mr. Griffin is F-A-R-A-I-M at LeeGriffing.com, G-R-I-F-F-I-N-G. And Scott Boris himself is F-A-R-A-I-M at ScottBoris.com, B-O-R-E-S. And that wraps it up. Thank you for listening this week. Lee and I will probably hang out in the chat for a moment as Mr. Boris makes yep. his 9 o'clock bedtime. See you all um, later. Listening. I'm hanging Take out. Take care. Bye. See you guys. Thanks. You know what to do, uh, right? Yeah, I get an email up. from the software. Hang up and, hang up and close Every, the browser, right? No, hang up don't and close, close the, browser. the browser. Leave close your the browser, browser right up. away. No, I always you leave hang it up. up. Just, just close oh, the browser. I, no hang up. Just close the browser. I always get an email uh, from the I'll software try company I'll try, saying, I'll Scott try Morris I'm gonna close, didn't I'm gonna close the browser. I'm going to close the browser. We'll see what happens. All right. He's gone. I think he did. Thank God. If he closed the browser, this is, unless you caught it live, it's the only way it's going to work. We'll see. Unless you caught it live, it's not going to make the stream because Scott's audio. It's just going to be us interacting with this person who's not talking if his track doesn't get uploaded right. Um, Tyler had a, a good point with the, uh, the helicopters. You look out into infinity. I remember that from my few hours in a, in a helicopter. Um, just staring out into affinity to help you hover. Not that I can hover. I was very, I was all over the place. I felt like I could do it. And then I started to do it. And within 10 seconds, instructor had to take the helicopter and recenter us. See, I feel like I'd have a really, I mean, like I kind of would like to get my rotorcraft, but I feel like I tend to over control. Oh, we're going to do it. Well, I, I hope so. But I feel like I would take so much time because I tend to over control. But I maybe maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. I, I don't know. But I've like I've seen horror stories, or I'm not horror stories, but I've seen videos of guys thinking they can go do it, and they own an airplane, they just go jump in, and they just start this oscillation. Oh yeah, like three it seconds done. Back and forth, back and oh, forth. Oh yeah, just yep. over controlling the shit out of it. Yeah, that'd be well, me. Well, the looking out, and I'm sure there's different situations with helicopters, but I talked to one of the chopper guys that's on the yachts, lands on the yachts, or yeah, or the captain. I don't know. I don't know if it was firsthand or secondhand, but you, they can't like look out in infinity when they're landing because they get such tight tolerances on the deck, on the boat, that they got to like basically be looking right at their skeg and putting it right where the skeg's supposed to be on the deck mark or else bad stuff's going to happen. Well, right. But we're also talking like here and we have the duality of this show of we can talk about super advanced things, which I imagine Tyler is more probably on that end and, and rotorcraft and, you know, maybe me and jets. And there's also like what you have to tell people when they're learning, 
you don't go get a jet flying helicopter on a yacht because you're brand new to flying helicopters. Oh, no, thousands and thousands and thousands just like, of usually military right. time. Right. And just like I can maybe have a little bit of a different landing technique where my eyes, eyes look, and maybe I don't, but I think that I do. I've always been told that I do. And that work out okay for me because that's how I, that's how I've always done it and I can make it work, you know, but for a brand new private pilot fixed wing, you're going to tell them to look down the runway and, you know, get depth perception or whatever. So not, not so much that it's a, for me and not for the type scenario. It's just when you accumulate thousands of hours, you can kind of modify things to suit. Yeah, there's two Tyler B's on here. Tyler, who we've been talking to forever, is is TB1. We're gonna go with, and okay, then TB1. The, yeah, yeah, and then TB2, who we'll go with, said that that was his review that Scott read. So that was that's cool. I don't think oh, we've ever thank had you that. for that. No, I don't think I don't we've know. ever had that. Was like, Razorback Tulsa? As, is he Tulsa? I need to I know. Have no idea. Well, I'm if asking he, him now. If he if he's still pops in. in the chat, we'll. Where's Razorback? I want to say Tulsa or somewhere. Well, anyways, I didn't um, know that was a place. I did not think of no place razor when I heard like that. that's um that's a it's a college. I can't remember. It's a VOR. There's a Razorback VOR like oh, RZC Romeo Zulu Charlie or something like that. Okay, I can't remember Arkansas. We'll as he says. Oh, so yeah, like you Fayetteville not right like near all. Fayetteville. Ah, I don't know. Yeah, TB, I guess not. TB1. He says PIO is hilarious. I don't know what that is. What? P-I-O, P- all caps. Would have come oh, in pilot handy. induced oscillation. Oh. I, I assume. That'd be maybe. me, dude. That'd, That'd be impressive. Be That'd be impressive if you knew that helicopter jargon. Well, that means you have zero helicopter time, do you? I mean, zero, I have a few hours yeah. in an R-22. That's it. Fayetteville. Lee got it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've been out there. XNA. Yeah, I've been in there job. a lot. Yeah. Well, I knew it was somewhere out there. I apologize. I didn't mean, I mean, I didn't mean to insult you with Tulsa, but yeah, I've been out there a lot. Um, yeah, rotorcraft would be fun. Um, what else we have? What else do we have on the horizon here? Well, um, what did we cover that I didn't really get to c- come back around to? I think, I think everything. I, I just, know, Ty- Tyler B1 you know, is talking about maintaining center line discipline. I'm, Going up through the chat here, um, he says he always j- lands just left of center on, mm. um, and then narrow runways. He's dead on. I'm opposite. I'm all, I always land on the right because of the east end or the west end landing east at Scott's place back when we were doing it. There was a bad spot right in the center of our touchdown point because so many people landed on it that we always landed the right. I, I have definitely you, noticed. I don't know what go. your excuse is, Tyler B one. But landing left. I mean, he's talking rotorcraft, left. or is he talking? No, he's talking an airplane. I assume he's dual rated. I know from our conversations, okay. previous conversations. I know that, like, I definitely get the sensation that I'm left, but I, uh, I tighten it in as we get closer. But it, you know, people, I don't think do a very good job with centerline control. Like, I've noticed that. Like, I will make the, I will do. And I, well, and arguably I'd be, I'm pissed at myself when I'm done doing it, but I make every effort to get back to the center line. If I land off the center line, trying to get a good landing, I make, I will probably turn what felt like a good touchdown into kind of a herky jerky 
actual landing, getting on the brakes and all that stuff to get back to center line. That's me. Be on the center line. At least have it. And I'm, I don't think we're talking about extremes here. But like at the airlines and, and things like that, when I was flying with like a lot of guys right off of IOE and stuff, new, new FOs, um, like one of the mains is on the center line. And we're talking at the airlines, which granted it is different. Like, yeah, you expect a higher level of performance, but also it's not, it's not the same. It's almost a, it's just another airplane. Yeah. But it's not as easy to just whip it back over to the center line. If you figure out that you're off. So I don't know, but yeah, plenty of times I've seen the center, the mains touchdown on the center line, which I would say is is not acceptable. Okay, Tyler said, I feel like I'm all centered up and then wham, left, only on wider runways, and then says, not bad left, just a wheel width or two left. Wheel width or two left in GA airplanes, that's basically dead center. Yeah, You're okay, fine. yeah, Jesus not Christ. Even, no. What do you cut your toast with an exacto knife or what? Lee. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> no micrometers, man. You're making this all look bad. That's my job. That's my job to be the crazy person. All right. That's a good note to wrap it up. I'm sweating profusely because I'm in Florida with no AC on right now. And um, okay. so, yeah, let's let's enter the awkward phase again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Yes. Catching us live. Thank and, you. Um, we'll begin the awkward process of me shutting this down. All right. Um, I don't. I think we're still live. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Seriously, and thank you for hanging out after the kind of the show's over. I mean, I guess it's not really over for you, but this is my favorite part. Um. Yeah. I think we're done. Your live stream has ended. Great. All right. All right. Scott and What's I it? holding down yeah. the live Q and A. We know you, nothing. Now's when you should ask your really technical questions. Yeah, yeah. This is a yeah. good technical question well, insert while here. Lee's, while Lee's gone, now we can we can get down to the serious stuff. Yes. So. Um, what's everyone What's everyone drinking? Hold on, hold on. Mm. Tyler's got a, something we could maybe go on here. Currently trying to find my yeah. balance. With AATD Sim, max 20, and diminishing value of simulated time that isn't dual time, considering also the PIC cross-country requirements might be a gating factor for lower time pilots. They'll have to build two. Lots of those flights with dual are approaches only and not logging cross-country, 50-plus nautical miles. That's a good... It's true. That's true. Um, And then 91.109C is the safety pilot reg. So... Yes, I was right, as usual. Um, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, any other questions? I got another email that uh, we can go off of if no one's got anything in the in the, in the the chat here. Uh, but if when Lee comes back, if you want anything answered, or if you think maybe Scott and I can answer something. I, I basically know everything, so. Yeah. Well, you know bu- buying airplane stuff, you know, kind of like... You're in the yeah. tri-pacer market. You know you know yeah. what those are going for now, right? Yeah. What yeah. airplane did you just bought? What's the most recent plane you just bought? Uh, PA-28. Uh, it's a, it's a 61. It's a 1961 uh, Cherokee 160. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So is it's it, not... Is it a good plane? Yeah. I mean, I'm, 
do good with the parts, but uh, it's definitely not going yeah. back together. Did it have an engine when you bought it? It did. It did have an engine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Only 100 hours on the engine, I'd ask too. Oh, you should probably get good money for that then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's been sitting for like 20 years. So oh, it needs, needs definitely needs gone through again, but still should be. What, what would it take? How many plans are you buying a year? I don't know. Two Sorry about that, guys. Usually. Scott's talking airplanes he just bought. He said he just bought one with the, only 100 hours on the motor. Yeah. Some old Piper you'd lovely. What kind yeah. of engine? Out. What kind um, of engine? That's 160 Lycoming. What is it? Oh, it's 320? Yeah, yeah. I should know that. But gotcha. Yeah. Right. What, off what airplane? Uh, PA-28, 1961. Oh, Cherokee. Cherokee. Yeah. Oh, an old yeah. Cherokee. Holy yeah. smokes. 